showed me such love. I think you made me a quiche, dear. And it was delicious. <laughs> Anything's delicious when made with love. We need Werner. We've been asking God to preserve his life. I think it's providential that we're here right now to go through this with you. Because you can be assured that we are praying and we shall continue to pray all the way through this. The good thing about being a Christian is no matter what happens, we win. Amen. To live is Christ, to die is gain. I think God still has some work for Bernard to do. But the other thing that strikes me, there's not that much time left, really. I'm not using hyperbole when I say that. I'm telling that everywhere I go because that's a burden on my heart. We are very close to the second coming of Jesus Christ. He's coming just as you've heard. Exactly. Very soon Jesus is coming. It's stunning to me. You go to Matthew 24. It's stunning to me. The succession of events, one tumbling after another, coming straight out of the prophets of the Bible. Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Isaiah, Joel, page after page after page. You can look at it in the Bible, then you can look in the, in the today's newspaper and see the same thing. I've never seen a time like this. And neither have you. And neither has a lot of people. When I first became a Christian, everyone was conscious of the second coming. The book that was popular in the late 1970s was The Late Great Planet Earth. It brought millions of people to Christ. And that wasn't the only book. All the books were about the second coming of Jesus. And furthermore, people would start churches called Maranatha Fellowship. Or a music ministry, Maranatha Music. Or teenage kids would go around, they were Jesus people with Maranatha on their shirt. You know what Maranatha means? It's a heartfelt prayer. Oh, Lord, come! And you're supposed to want the Lord to come. And we do want the Lord to come. But, alas, I'm speaking for my own generation. Then we uh, prepared ourselves for our life's work. And we got married and had children and bought houses and had the ups and downs of normal life. And now fast forward 38 years or so. And so many of those people that long for the Lord's coming hardly even believe in it anymore. Some of those churches, so many of those churches that proclaim the Lord's coming won't even touch prophecy anymore. There are very many reasons for this, of course, of which I can only touch on a couple. There are deceivers in the Christian church, like Rick Warren of America, who say, don't pay attention to prophecy. When it happens, it happens. Go about the real important things. There's nothing as important as the second coming of Jesus. These people are used by the devil. They would take this chapter that I'm going to look at today, the words of Jesus Christ, get you ready for the second coming of Jesus, to get the world ready for the second coming. They would take those words and say, you know what, don't even worry about it. There's other important things. I can't think of anything more important than Jesus coming back. There's other reasons, too, though. Many people felt stupid because they were so enthusiastic about Maranatha that they bought the book, 84 Reasons Why Jesus is Coming in 1984, and the revised edition, 88 reasons why Jesus is coming in 88. And they still have shotgun shells and rice in their basement from Y2K. And you get to this point where you think, I'm not going to be made a fool of anymore. And instead of admitting that you're wrong, they've checked out on the doctrine. Very few churches anymore. I never thought it would be like this. Very few churches even address the subject of end times prophecy. This is, this is stunning to me. This is, from a pastoral perspective, dereliction of duty, serious denial of Christ. When mega, mega, mega things are happening in the world, and they're going to get up and give a sermon on relationships or better ways to improve your home. or Are you kidding me? And it is amusing, but also it's deadly. It's soul-deadening. 
Well, this is what Jesus said, too, that, uh, you know, when you think about it, now, I haven't even gotten the text yet. All this is free. I'm not going to ask you for anything for this. All right. Look, how many times you see in the parables, a man's going to throw a big feast. You want to go? Sure. You get, you get the invitation? Yeah. A man's got a wedding coming. You want to go? You want to go? You want to go? Everyone gets the invitation. Everyone's excited when they get the invitation. They get so happy, they get so excited, and they get all dressed up, and they get their lamps, and they just never know when it's going to happen, but they can't wait, right? But they all fall asleep. Why do they all fall asleep? They all fall asleep because there is an excitement with the invitation, but between the invitation and the actual event, there can be a long, drawn-out period. I mean, I was not thinking I'd still be here after 1980, okay? That's how excited I was about the coming of Christ. I never thought I'd see the year 2000. I was so happy. I'm still happy, though, and excited. I I just long for Jesus to come. But anyway, they fall asleep. Now, that long period between the invitation and the event, that's one thing. But then the other section is... Once the cry goes out, time for the wedding, everything just falls one after another. I mean, event after event after event after event happens so fast and accelerated so much, you can't keep up with it if you're not ready. Hey, I have run out of oil. Well, you can't get my oil. It's not interchangeable at this point. You've got to go and buy oil. If I buy oil, then I won't get in the wedding on time. And by the way, this wedding that you've been invited to is not like any other wedding. Anyone ever heard of a wedding where if the bridesmaid says, you know what, I forgot my posy, or what do you call those flowers? I forgot my posy. Let's poke. She runs home to get it, and when she gets back to the wedding, they slam the door in her face and say, you can't come in. Well, this isn't like any other wedding. This wedding coming is the ground of all true joy, and meaning. Blessed are all those invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. This is the most important event on the horizon. Now, that's why Jesus said, and think with me, Jesus said, Behold, I come quickly. Well, when did He say it? 2,000 years ago. I used to read that. Now, look, I, I, I look at this stuff and I try to be honest with myself. That doesn't sound right. I come quickly and it's 2,000 years. That's quickly? Or another place where Jesus told a parable of a woman who was a widow and desperate for help and deliverance. And she cried out to the judge. Remember that? And at the end he says, see, God will avenge his elect speedily. It's the same word. He will? There's a lot of injustice that's happened over the last 2,000 years. A lot of persecution. A lot of pain. A lot of sorrow. You're telling me it's going to happen speedily? Then I found out that I didn't understand the meaning of quickly and speedily as used in the Bible. It's not, oh, just in a few seconds. That's not what quickly means. The root of the word in the Greek is is tatos, the same word we get a tachometer from. What it means is an acceleration of revolutions. As as you get closer and closer to the event, stuff happens faster and 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 faster until it just just tumbles over. You can't even keep up with it. That's what quickly means. There's the invitation. There's the long wait. But then at one point, boom, once things start happening, they happen so fast that if you're not ready for it, you're going to be left behind. You will not make it in that. Now, I'm consumed and, and, and frightened, truly, uh, in my soul. i am kind of got this angst and anxiety. I'm saved and I know I'm going to heaven. But what I'm anxious about is that I believe that our, this generation has been distracted so bad. I actually believe that there are many people in Pentecostal, charismatic, and evangelical churches that not only are they not ready, many of them aren't even saved. But they would swear up and down, that they're in the cutting edge of Christian life. It's Jesus warned about a delusion. I mean, just think about events right now. I mean, no, uh, I'm not talking about the Olympics or the World Cup 
or Pokemon Go. Okay. I'm talking about real events. The disintegration of Syria right before your eyes. It's so stunning. And so much stuff happens it almost numbs us. But think about it. Syria, yes, primarily Muslim, but a very modern and enlightened Muslim state in which Christians and Muslims and other minority faiths did find a way to live a civilized life together. Until... Western powers, including the U.S., France, Germany, European Union, began to attack Bashar Assad, who I don't like, but, but I wish they wouldn't have done this. And as a result, I'm telling you, in your life, in the last couple months, a nation of 22 million people, more than half, more than 11 million had to flee that nation because of the destruction that's going on. Now, the Bible has a chapter about Syria. Isaiah predicted, Isaiah 18, Damascus shall become a heap of rubble. It shall no longer even be a city. Now, people read stuff like that and they think, well, that probably happened in ancient history. No, didn't you read it? It won't be a city anymore. That's not ever happened. In fact, you know what Damascus' claim to fame is? It is the oldest continuously inhabited city in the world. You can go to Damascus and find the street where the Apostle Paul, back when he was Saul, got his sight back. The street's still there. Straight street. That's where Saul got his sight back. That city is still there. But God says, Damascus shall become a heap of rubble. It shall no longer be a city. And then the next verse says, And the cities of Aror, which are the plain around Damascus, shall be deserted. Now, for anyone that has eyes to see, I mean, I saw a video with the Russian military took a drone over the cities of Aror with a, with a camera. And I thought of the prophecy as I saw block after block after block after block after block of modern constructed buildings collapsed on themselves, piles of rubble as he went over these cities, and not a sign of life in any of them. They are deserted. Four million went to Turkey. Four million went to Jordan. Two million went to Lebanon. Millions are pouring into Europe. You see what I'm saying? Prophecies being fulfilled while people play Pokemon. This is the problem with this, because I'm not actually trying to, to be funny. I mean, this, this is demonic distraction. This is a time where people should look to their Maker. It says in that same chapter, In that day, men will look to their Maker. No, they won't. Not if they're distracted by the World Cup, and not if it's not touching them directly, and not if they can ignore it, and not if pastors get up and preach better relationships week after week after week after week as the prophets explode on the world scene. And you got people oblivious. I'm telling you, I have a sense of urgency, and I also have some kind of sense of grievance and angst over the many, many, many in our ranks who are absolutely oblivious. Did I talk, talk about Syria? How about Turkey? Turkey was a modern nation. Very, very, very much a Muslim nation, but very, very much Islam in all of its extreme elements under wraps. Why? Because Turkey got on the wrong side of World War I. They sided with the Germans. And when the Germans and Turkey lost the World War, Turkey lost a 500-year-old empire called the Ottoman Empire. Big, big events happen in, our, in, in modern world. They lost a 500-year-old empire, which was most of the Middle East. This is how the nation that would become Israel came into British hands. France and, and England just rewrote the Middle East. In some, in some times they took, took a map out and put a straight edge. Well, here's Morocco, and here's Algeria, and here's Iraq, 
And here's Jordan. They make countries out of thin air in the Middle East and redivide the whole thing and impose some kind of a really well-thought-out order that has existed since World War I, which is a hundred years ago. But that order has been collapsing right before your eyes since 2011, the so-called Arab Spring. Back to Turkey. Turkey is important. Sixth largest army in the world, the greatest army in Europe, a NATO member, a modern country that put Islam in its place and was able to have freedom. They banned the burqa. They banned all this stuff. And they dismantled something that has broken the hearts of the Muslim, Sunni Muslim world, the caliphate. Anyone heard that word caliphate? What is the caliphate? Well, see, three-quarters of the Muslim world, and by the way, there's 1.7 billion Muslims in the world. Three-quarters of them are Sunni Muslims. Most of the rest are Shiite or Sufi. And the caliphate is the central Sunni authority. Okay. And as long as there's a caliph, which means the prince of the faithful, then every Sunni Muslim, that's three-quarters of 1.7 billion people, is bound, obligated, and determined to engage in total, flat-out jihad against the enemies of Islam, which is everybody else in the world. Okay. See, there's a big debate even in the days of Osama bin Laden within the Muslim world, the Sunni world, because some people said, Osama, it's not right. You shouldn't be doing this yet. You should not launch this jihad because we don't have a caliphate yet. And that was the big debate. You're supposed to work in the system until we get the caliphate back. Then, then we'll all. And so Osama bin Laden was, was, sparked a lot of debate. Al-Qaeda didn't have that much support. But then an American arm, European arm, faction of Sunni Islam raised up to take out Bashar Assad of Syria. Quit fighting Assad and just carved out for themselves out of the recently vacated Iraq. Brand new country, ISIS. Anyone ever hear of ISIS? The Islamic State of Iraq and Syria, or ISIL, the Islamic State of Iraq and the Levant. Levant's the old word for the Near East that included Israel. And the leader Abu Bakr climbed the steps of a very famous mosque in Islam and proclaim the resurrection of the caliphate. That's why ISIS is infinitely more powerful than Al-Qaeda. And people are streaming from Australia, America, Europe, Muslims from all over the world pouring in to be part of this resurrection of the caliphate. See, back to Turkey, because I'm trying to show people the relevance of events. These are big, big things happening. Back to Turkey. Turkey's important to us as Christians. Most of the New Testament in your lap was written to Christians in that very region. The book of Revelation, all seven churches in Turkey. The book of John, Gospel of John, Turkey. First and Second Timothy, Turkey. The letters of John, Turkey. That was the center of Christendom. And then Jesus told one of those churches, if you don't repent of this compromise with false prophecy, if you don't repent of this compromise with fornication and meat sacrifice to idols, I'll take your lamp out of its place. And what do you got in Turkey now? Wall-to-wall Islam. Islam's a judgment. And remember what Jesus said to one of the other churches in Turkey. The one in Pergamum. I know where you live, where Satan's throne is. Jesus actually located Satan's throne in Turkey. Turkey was pretty secular until fairly recently. And a man came to power that was an Islamist and an Islamist party, Erdogan. And Erdogan, you see, according to the Turkish constitution post-World War I, there's a man named Ataturk, reorganized the whole country, put Islam off to the side. It said the army is the guardian of Turkish secularism. Separation of mosque and state. 
And there have been times in recent Turkish history where Islamists tried to take power and the army stepped in and removed the Islamists and turned, didn't take over, turned it back to a secular person. But Erdogan has evaded successfully the army. In fact, this latest coup, are you all aware of the coup in Turkey? It's all a prophetic function. The coup, uh, which was staged, uh, allowed Erdogan to purge the ranks of the army and the intellectual class and education and even religion. The last count I heard, and that's before I came, 61,000 people purged. Dangerous country. Because the U.S. has a weak leader, Erdogan has the courage to shut down a U.S. airbase with nuclear possible payloads. They can't do their sorties against ISIS. He shut it down. Why? Because he wants someone from America to be extradited. So he actually shut off the power and made hostages out of 1,500 U.S. servicemen and a very strategic air base. This is a man who gives speeches through a hologram. Can you imagine that? What's well, a great speech, Mr. Erdogan? You go to shake his hand, your hand goes right through him. It's not him. It's a holographic pro projection. It gives new meaning to the expression, and he gave life to the beast. This is a man who opened an airport, Saladin International Airport. Someone said, why did you name him for the famous Saladin? He said, because he's the last Muslim to take over Jerusalem. And I'm going to unite the whole Muslim world and take Jerusalem back for the glory of Islam. This is prophecy. In the last days, I'll make Jerusalem a heavy weight over the whole world. The whole world will stumble over it. And besides that, in closing, on my pre-sermon sermon, if you got to go, you got to go. Just I won't mind. I don't have much time, see? Besides that, I might not ever come back here again. I hope I do. But the world's changing so fast. We just don't know what's going to happen. So get ready. See, the last ultimate battle for Jerusalem is described in the book of Ezekiel 38. And he gives this confederation all the way, by the way, which are all falling into place. Russia will be there. Putin will be there. Iran will be there. A nation that Obama just gave $150 billion to, even though they pledged to wipe out Jerusalem, Israel. North Africa will be there. Libya. Remember Libya? There was a guy named Gaddafi. He was out of his mind. I couldn't stand him. He had blood on his hand. But he got so scared when George Bush went into Iraq that he volunteered, gave up all his nuclear program and began to help in the war on terror against terrorism. Well... That was until Hillary Clinton, Secretary of State, Obama, France, and Germany pulled the rug out from under him and allowed him to be tortured to death in the streets and murdered. And then you had another one of those states. I wouldn't want to live there. You wouldn't want to live there. But compared to the rest of the Muslim world, it's pretty enlightened. Now it's a terror state. And Turkey will be there. Because when you read Ezekiel 38, you read the nations such as uh, Meshach, Tubal, Gomer, the house of Togarma. Those are the Turkic peoples. That's Turkey in a confederation against Jerusalem. See, this is not the time to be stupid. Nor is this the time to be heedless. Look, I, I got I, I just don't take offense. I mean, the time is short, and, and you're probably not stupid, but there are so many that are. 
They don't know any of this stuff, and they don't think there's any bearing on any of it, and they think it's boring and negative, and the last thing we want to do, and it might send people out of the church. Look, man, it's time for truth. He's coming. Jesus is coming. And I'm so happy, amen? Well, one aspect of Jesus' coming is you got to get divorced from the world, and you'll never divorce from the world until you see this world has less and less room for people like you and me than ever before. There is nothing here for us. I never wanted to live in a gay world. I never wanted to live in a Muslim world. I never wanted to live in a world of perversion and sexual anarchy. And that's the world our politicians the blind guides leading the blind multitudes to hell. That's the world they're creating. And that's the world many fake Christian churches are making peace with. It's frightening, really. Now, look, I said all this. I haven't even started, so I better, well, I better truncate my sermon, right? Look, Matthew 24 is the definitive teaching of Jesus on His own coming. This is a hugely important chapter. There are reflections of it in Mark and Luke, but this is Him just laying it all out. And what I want to do today is I want to read a passage of it, but then I want to comment not on Matthew 24, but the context which I think is often missed, that can be quite enlightening. Matthew 24, it says, Then Jesus left the temple. Let me get there. Jesus went out and departed from the temple, and his disciples came to him for to show him the buildings of the temple. And Jesus said unto them, You do not see all these things. Truly I say to you, there shall not be left here one stone upon another that shall not be thrown down. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us when shall these things be? What shall be the sign of thy coming and of the end of the world? And Jesus answered and said unto them, Take heed that no man deceive you. For many will come in my name, saying, I am Christ, and shall deceive many. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you be not troubled, for all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. For nations shall rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. And there shall be famines and pestilences and earthquakes in divers places. And all these are the beginning of sorrows. Then will they deliver you up to be afflicted, and shall kill you, and you shall be hated of all nations for my name's sake. And then shall many be offended. This is part of my angst. It's not going to turn out the way a lot of people think it will. And this will become a major offense to many. Many will be offended, and they'll literally hate, betray one another. And shall hate one another. And many false prophets shall rise and shall deceive many. And because iniquity shall abound, the love of many shall grow cold. He's talking to confessing people. One thing I want to say before I go on further. Uh, trials don't give you faith. Nor do trials destroy faith. They can't. All the trials and tribulations where people get offended, people betray, people actually hate each other. What happened? Did, they, did their faith get destroyed by the trials? Impossible. Trials can't destroy faith. Nor can they give you faith. I know a guy in America said, I'm praying for persecution so that he could purify the church. He said, why would you want to do that? I'm not sick, man. I don't want to suffer as a means to an end. And besides that, persecution won't give you faith then what do trials do? Trials reveal whether there is faith or not. They strip you down of everything but whatever is there or whatever's not there. Either way, it's beneficial. It's beneficial to know if you even have faith or not, right? And by the way, it would be beneficial to find out that you, if you thought you had faith and don't, that's a good thing. Then you can get your faith while you're still alive. Like oil, it's not transferable after a certain point. Now, oh, let me just give one more passage and then I'm going to comment on this, okay? That, verse 16. Then let them which are in Judea flee to the mountains. 
Let him which is on the house stop not come down to take anything out of his house. Neither let him which is in the field return back to take his clothes. And woe to them that are with child and to them that give suck in those days. But pray that your flight be not in the winter, neither on the Sabbath day. For then will be great tribulation such as the world has never seen before. Nor will it ever see again. These are the words of Jesus, your Savior. This is what he says coming. But let me give the context of it. You see, the context of Matthew 24. First, I'd like to talk about the context of it in history. Salvation history. When did Jesus and John the Baptist come to Israel? Why, they came 40 years before the most devastating judgment that had ever come on God's holy people. This judgment that would come 40 years after Jesus and John the Baptist, the Romans would come in and slaughter a million and a half Jews. They would take virtually the rest of the population, glut the world's slave markets with Jews, and like Moses predicted, scatter them from one end of the earth to the other, and they would stay scattered like that for 2,000 years. And the context of Matthew 24 is, this is what God sent people to Israel to warn them of one generation before it happened. So you could, when you think about that and really absorb that, it puts Jesus' preaching and John the Baptist's preaching in a totally different context. They're not just going around giving teachings. They're warning them, something's coming. I don't think you're ready. Something's coming on you that you have no idea. You should, but you don't. Something's coming on you that I don't think you're ready for. And you know, you can tell what the people thought back then by the preaching, especially of John the Baptist. John the Baptist says, you think that because you're children of Abraham, this has no bearing on you. Hmm? How modern. I know a lot of people had just enough evangelical Christianity to think everything's good. Whatever's coming is not going to touch me. I've been baptized. I'm part of the church. We're cutting edge. I got slain in the Spirit. I'm good. And they have no idea what's hurtling it. God could make children of Israel out of these stones. And what did he say? Hey, the axe is laid to the root. These guys were end-time preachers. Jesus was an end-time preacher. John the Baptist was an end-time preacher. It was the last days of Israel before the most devastating judgment that Israel had ever experienced. Now, by the way, how many here were alive in 1948? All right, praise the Lord. You were alive at the time of a miracle. In view of what I just said, a miracle. I, I'm going to tell you something. Do you think that if you saw the Red Sea, miracle, that you'd never doubt again? This is not a trick question, okay? I don't think I'd ever doubt again if I saw a whole sea part and a whole nation pass through it. I want to tell you something. What happened in May 1948 is even bigger than the Red Sea. It's greater than the miracle of the Red Sea. May 1948 is a bill forward from God to this whole world saying, the Bible's real, I'm real, Jesus is real, furthermore, judgment is coming. Why do I say it's a bigger miracle than the Red Sea? A lot of nations have been obliterated. Romans probably took a lot of nations and sold them into slavery. A lot of nations have been destroyed. A lot of the nations have been scattered, assimilated into other nations. Have you seen any Hittites lately, anybody? Is there a Philistine working at the coffee shop down on the corner or something? They're gone! And never to come back. But this nation... Scattered from one end of the earth to the other, but kept in state. That's a miracle. How scattered? Well, like I tell congregations, there's some crazy tribe out in India. They won't work on Saturday and they never eat pork or shrimp. They do a DNA test. 
I'm talking India, Mowgli, Jungle Book. Lo and behold, they're Jews. They pack them up and they go back to Israel. This is a bigger miracle than the Red Sea. That a nation could be scattered to the ends of the earth and then reconstituted according to the words of the prophet. But see, Jesus and John the Baptist are sent to them on the verge of that catastrophic judgment. Remember, he wept for Jerusalem. All the little children gathered around. Hosanna! Hosanna! And the leaders rebuked the children. Don't do that. Don't say that. Jesus wept because he knew that when those children came of age, in 40 years, I mean, if you want to read terror, read Josephus on the last days of Jerusalem. It's nightmare stuff. Let me move on because I took so much time earlier. Another part of the context is that this uh, sermon in Matthew 24 happened to be given on Passover week, the last week of Jesus' life. Passover week. Jesus comes into Jerusalem. Now remember, he saw a fig tree. And he saw leaves on the fig tree, so he says there's got to be fruit because there's leaves. Evidently, the fruit comes first in that kind of fig tree. So he picks up the leaves, there's no fruit. So he curses the fig tree. And remember the next day, the disciples come by, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered away. A lot of people think, well, that's Jesus teaching us faith, teaching us about prayer. That's nonsense. Remember that, among other things, Jesus is the Word of God. He is a prophet of God. And the cursing of the fig tree was nothing less than a prophetic act. And what it represents is not lost on the people of the time. The fig tree is the symbol of Israel in the blessing of God. Israel's uniquely blessed by God. Paul gives a list of the blessings. They were given the word first. They were given the priesthood. They were given the worship. Man, one of the greatest blessings. I mean, like Moses said, who is like Israel? There's no nation like it. A nation which God himself descended from heaven and came into a holy house and inhabited the nation by inhabiting that holy house. It was the service of mercy that was given to them. The service of intercession and sacrifice and the forgiveness of sins. And people came from the ends of the earth to that place. And God animated a whole nation by His presence. And what Jesus is warning is, that fig tree is cursed. No man eat fruit of you from hereafter. I translate this to the church. Church is the body of Christ. Where two or more are gathered, there am I in the midst of them. But what makes church? Church. God in the midst. I wouldn't even come here if I didn't believe that God was here. I wouldn't go to any church I didn't think God was at. And I don't need a big fancy church or a thousand people in a church or a fancy coffee machine or something. What are they trying to make up for? What really is missing? The only essential thing is where two or more gathered, there am I in the midst of them. This meeting here is the most important meeting in this city because two or more gathered in the name of Jesus. But what would happen if God no longer dwelt in the church? And at what point? It's the unthinkable, isn't it? It's absolutely unthinkable. At what point? Would a church not be a church anymore? It would be at the point where God wasn't in it. The idea of the temple and the idea of Israel, it translates in the New Testament, the idea of the church is any unbeliever from the outside, if they come in the midst, then somehow or other, they're going to be better off for it. And yet I know and have cried out against churches or you're going to be worse off for exposure to them. You're going to know less than you knew before you went in there. Then, worse than less. What's worse than less? You're going to know wrong. 
You're going to get false prophets. You're going to get false spiritual experiences. You're going to get high on the Holy Ghost, which isn't even biblical. You're going to get uh, pablum. You're going to get uh, salve for a troubled conscience. You're going to be told peace, peace, where there is no peace. You're going to get fake grace of all things. Fake grace. That's frightening. What's fake grace? Oh, God loves you just the way you are. That's it. God loves you. All that matters is God's love. This is fake. God does love us. But the Bible doesn't really talk that much about how much God loves us. And when it does, it puts the love in context. The broken law of God. The offended righteousness of God. The fall of man. And then, the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. But what happens if people are worse for going to a church? What's going to happen? Now let's read on. This is the context, okay? He went and talked about a mountain cast into the sea. In Matthew 22 and Mark 11... After the fig tree, he says, Whoever says to this mountain, Be thou cast into the sea, and will not doubt, he will have what he says. Now, I used to be in part of a semi-Christian sect that actually worshipped that verse and totally misinterpreted it. See, you can say whatever you want and it'll happen. Thank you, God, for delivering me. One of the great regrets of my life was ever being part of that. Once again, prophetic talk. The mountain. The mountain, the holy Mount Zion, the center of worship for the whole world, the joy of the whole earth, the mountain, the nation of Israel, the mountain, the holy people. What happened? They're plucked up and thrown into the sea. The sea is a metaphor in the prophets for the nations of the world. How did those Jews end up in Mowgli's India? The mountain was cast up and thrown into the sea. Now it's Passover. This is the other part of the context. You know how, as Christians, we have different songs for different times of the year. I'm thinking especially Christmas carols. Now don't come up here and talk to me about Christmas, okay? Everyone has to have their own conscience, all right? But there are songs that I was raised from birth singing around December, okay? And one of them was Silent Night, Holy Night, All is Calm, all is, but one of the most beautiful songs I've ever heard. And the other was uh, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, you know. I sang those all my life. Here's the thing. Uh, the Jews had something similar. Every holiday season, they had certain songs they sang. And this account here is dominated by one of those songs. It's in the subtext. It's Psalm 118. And they sang that for centuries at Passover. And if you read Psalm 118 on your own time, fantastic psalm, one of my favorite psalms, right smack in the center of the Bible, you know. And it's beautiful. But, you know, you sing these songs for centuries like I sang... Hark the herald angels sing for centuries. If you would have said, what do you mean hark? I don't know. What's a herald? I have no idea. I just sing them. They're beautiful. They're associated with the season. I don't know what I'm singing. Son of God loves pure light. I didn't even think about it. Never thought about it. It's just a beautiful, beautiful song loaded with emotion and association with Christmas. And that is the way the Jews sang Psalm 118 for centuries. What are some of the lines? It's much more extensive than Hark the Herald Angels Sing. It's like, uh, Save now, O Lord, I beseech the Save, send prosperity. And here's a one you guys know from Psalm 118. This is the day, this is the day that the Lord has made. And they'd sing this. And they'd sing other lines. The stone that the builders rejected. What are you singing about? I have no idea. It's Psalm 118, of course. It's, it's Passover. Stone that the builders rejected became the cornerstone. And open to me the gates of righteousness. When I get to heaven, I want to hear the real tune on that. All right? 
Open to be the gates of righteousness. The righteous nation shall enter. And then another line. We welcome you out of the house of the Lord. And then this mysterious line. God is the Lord that showed us light. Bind the sacrifice with cords to the altar. You can sing that for centuries. You might like the tune and the association and Passover. You have no idea what you're singing. Now, here's what happened to me. When I got born again, between the age of 18 and 19, Christmas came around as it always did. And so I'm singing these songs just out of pure sentiment. And all of a sudden, Born to raise the sons of earth. Born to give them second birth. All of a sudden, boom! I know what that is! <laughs> I finally know what that is! I've been born again! you got to understand, I never heard the expression born again my whole life until Jimmy Carter ran for president. See, the song goes off. Turns out the song was about things way bigger than I was. And I had to experience something in God to even appreciate what I was singing. Now I love Christmas carols now more than ever. Now, you got these Jews for centuries singing Psalm 118. And here's the context for Matthew 24. That you've got to take into account. First of all, this was the day. This is the day. This, that's not talking about just any day. That's talking about one calendar day, which Daniel predicted 530 years earlier, to the day that the Messiah would present himself in the temple to the elders of Israel. The other part of the song, open the gates of righteousness that the righteous nation shall come in. The Messiah comes into the temple. The gates of righteousness, the holy house of God. And then the song sings almost like a drama that's supposed to be played out. The leaders and sages and the elders and the priests of the people are to welcome the Messiah. We welcome you from the house of the Lord. Just like the song sang. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That's one of the lyrics of the song too. Only here's the breakdown. Though they sang the song, when the actual prophecy that song pointed to was being fulfilled, he did come to the temple on the appointed day. It was the day the Lord made. But the elders of the people rejected him. That's where the other line in the song predicts. The stone that the builders rejected. Hmm, wonder what we're singing about. And then within yards, there they are rejecting the chief cornerstone of God's true temple. And so, in Matthew 23, to get to my point and not keep you too long, Matthew 23 is perhaps the most scathing prophetic sermon in the whole Bible. I won't take you through all of it. Read it yourself, but it's frightening. He mourns over that nation, pleads with the leaders, but he tells them, look, you guys stand in the door of the kingdom of God. You won't let anyone else in, and you yourself won't go in. You don't really love God. And he talks about their hypocrisy, their play-acting, their pretend devotion to God, the willingness to bind heavy burdens on the poor lowly people that they could care less about. Really bad shepherds. He pronounces woes on them, judgments. Fiercer than any Old Testament prophet. And then at the end of the chapter, though, he gives two statements that are the context for Matthew 24. The first statement is devastating. He says, your house is left to you desolate. Do you understand what he's saying? God no longer lives in this house. Now what good is a holy nation if God is not in the midst of it? What good would a priesthood be without a God to make supplication to? 
What good would sacrifice be without a God to propitiate? Or I should make it a New Testament. What good is salt if it loses savor? If a church ordains homosexuals, are they still a church? Is it still a place where two or more can gather together? And there He is in the midst. When everything abominable to their God, they celebrate in the name of God. If a church joins with Islam for some kind of ecumenical interfaith unity, can they still be the church? Is really is he there in the midst of them? When does the church quit being a church? When God is no longer in the midst of it. Look, a lot of people's problems is they're loyal to the wrong things. You shouldn't be loyal to a church or a denomination. You should be loyal to God. And that loyalty is going to be tested. This is devastating, and this is the outcome. The outcome of this is the slavery, the judgment, the things Moses predicted. Second thing he said is a little more hopeful, although it's devastating. You will not see me again. This is the Messiah of Israel speaking to the leaders of Israel in his capacity as Messiah in the holy house of God. You will not see me again, but I'm glad he didn't stop there. He said, until. Until. Until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now look, God wasn't in that house anymore. Jesus left the temple. That's Matthew 24.1. He left the holy house. God left the holy house. God wasn't in that house, therefore all the horrors that they thought they were immune to came upon them. Jesus left. Ezekiel saw this. In a vision, Ezekiel 10-11, he saw the glory of God lift from the holy house of God, the holy place of the Lord. The glory of God came up. It lingered for a little bit, and then it went to the gate, and it lingered for a little bit, and then it went to the Mount of Olives, and it lingered for a little bit, and then it ascended to heaven, and was no more. Hosea predicted, I won't have you turn it because I've kept such time, but in Hosea 5, one of the most amazing uh, predictions in the Old Testament, God is speaking in the first person to Israel, and He's saying, I'm going to my place from which I came. I'm leaving. I'm going back where I came from. You read Kings and you see this glorious story where God sanctifies Mount Zion and they build according to a pattern from God, a holy house of God of worship. And God descends in a cloud and the nation is animated. But He says in Hosea, I'm going back to the place from which I came until you admit your sin. What would happen if God left a church? What would happen if God left a family? You need God in your family. What would happen if God left a soul? Doesn't the Bible talk about empty houses? If you're empty enough, you can't stay empty. You can be filled with something. I'm leaving, Jesus said, until you acknowledge your offense. You won't see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord is a technical phrase. It means, blessed is the one who actually has the God-assigned credentials of the Messiah. Blessed is the one. We recognize the prophecies are fulfilled in you. You are the embodiment of those prophecies. Your words, your deeds, the circumstances of your birth, your life. You are the one God was talking about. That's what it means when you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus said, I come in my own in the Father's name, he said. You won't receive me. Another will come in his own name. You will receive him. That's a prediction about the Antichrist. Last year at the 70th General Assembly of the UN, the Pope got up to make his remarks. You know how he opened them? I stand here in my own name. I thought, this is, that's weird. 
I mean, even if you don't know the Bible, that's a weird thing to say. I stand in my own name. What? Have you ever heard anyone use the expression, I stand here in my own name? What's it mean to stand in your own name? I've never heard anyone except one other person use that expression. Jesus. He said, that's Antichrist. And of course, they do receive the Pope. Well, anyway, I better close because I really kept you. What's it going to take? To get the prodigal nation to say of Jesus, all right, we were wrong. You really are the fulfillment of the prophecies. You really are the Messiah. And we were wrong. Nothing less than a great tribulation. Nothing less than great tribulation such as the world has never seen before nor will it ever see again. And the only verse in this chapter that I told you I'd teach on and that I'll comment on is the first one. First two, excuse me. Jesus uh, went out and departed from the temple and his disciples came to him for to show him the buildings of the temple. You know, this is the thing too. The disciples themselves missed a lot of the, the momentousness of what just happened there. They didn't realize that they were witness to an epical shift in the history of their own sacred nation on the verge of a long 2,000-year judgment, exile, and night. They're in tourist mode. Jesus, look at this temple. Well, the temple was impressive. There were stones in the temple as big as this stage area. You know who really remodeled the temple? King Herod. The guy that tried to kill Jesus as a baby. Turns out he's one of the great builders of the ancient world. And the temple was impressive. And Jesus said to the disciples, You see that temple? Not one stone will be left on another. Forty years later, Titus, the Roman, uh, the Roman general, and many legions of the Roman army, many auxiliaries of the, of the Edomites and the surrounding nations, Syrians, surrounded the city of Jerusalem. Titus gave strict instructions. Do not destroy that temple. It is a wonder. But the fighting was so fierce it broke out in the temple. And the holy curtains caught fire. And around the edge of the ceiling was gold crown molding that melted in between the cracks of the stones. And in the frenzy that followed, they pried one stone off another to get at the gold thus fulfilling the words of Jesus. You could go to the Kidron Valley in Jerusalem today and see piles of those stones as a testimony to the truth of Jesus. Now, then the disciples asked Jesus three questions, and there's where I close. And they're all three distinct questions. They're stunned. It's unthinkable. And this is what I'm getting. Unthinkable's coming. Unthinkable is coming. I mean, really, in a saner time, we'd think it unthinkable what happened to Syria, unthinkable what happened to Lebanon, modern places dissected on TV in front of everybody. It's it's obscene. It's frightening. He says, the first question, when will these things be? And that is a reference to the destruction of the temple. Jesus really focuses on that in Luke 21. The second question, what shall be the sign of thy coming? That's most of Matthew 24 is concerned with this and the other question. What shall be the sign not of the end of the world, the end of the age? See, in in biblical thought, Mankind inhabits two ages only. This age and the age to come. Now, you know what's funny? When you're born again, you say, if any man be in Christ, what? He is a... It's not a trick question. If any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. But what it literally says is, if any man be in Christ, behold a new creation. See, the age to come is a new creation. And we are the vanguard of the age to come. That's my problem in this world. 
I'm part of the new creation, but I'm still in the old creation. The old creation is the day of death, decay, destruction, but it also happens to be the day of grace, where a person can find the forgiveness of God through faith in Jesus who loved us and washed us from our sins in His blood. Do you believe that? And then the two ages overlap. <laughs> That's the thing. We're, in the, we're right here in between. Because the old age is passing away. It's under judgment. It will never be improved. God has passed a sentence on it. It's doomed. And so also all who are of the old age. The new age is about ready to dawn. It's the day of righteousness. It's the day of glory. Jesus called it the regeneration of all things. Paul calls it the glory which shall be revealed. The sufferings of this present time aren't even worthy to be compared to the glory that shall be revealed. What shall be the sign of thy coming and of the end of the age? And that's the end. I'm not going to go into that right now because you're done, aren't you? God bless you. Praise the Lord. Love you.